Hi, my name is Chris, and I'm going to be doing our Bible reading this morning. The passage is from Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7, and it can be found on 1089 of the Church Bibles. While exiled in Patmos, John is instructed by Jesus to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And we are reading this morning the letter to the church of Ephesus. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Good morning, friends. My name is Chris. I'm part of the ministry team here at OEC. If you're new or visiting or joining us for the Hislop celebration, a big welcome, and I hope you're enjoying your time with us. We're just going to spend some time thinking about what we just read and how those words apply to our lives today as we start our new series in the book of Revelation. What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it, got to do with it? What's love but a second-hand emotion? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Okay, I'll stop. Sorry, you're not going to get sung this morning. The, uh, the staff in the office have had to deal with me all week as this earworm has been stuck in my head. Tina Turner sung it in 1984. What's love got to do with it? It's catchy. It's memorable. I've been singing it for the last week or so, but it's incredibly mixed up. A song that celebrates deeds without love. A song that talks about tolerance and embrace without the heart. Ultimately, it's a song about a relationship that has no love. And it reflects the self-centered nature of love that we see in our world today. But friends, the Bible gives us a bigger and better picture of love. In 1 John 4, we read... Love consists of this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. When the Bible speaks about love, the primary defining love 
is the love of God the Father. It's a God's selfless love. It's other person-centered love. It's sacrificial. It's atoning. It's a love that rescues us from our sin. And the Bible says that when we experience that love, it has a profound transforming effect on us. You see, the love of God in us produces a love for God and a love for others that the world has never seen. A love that motivates us to submit to God's word and obey it. A love that motivates us to serve sacrificially. A love for others that wants, what's, that wants God's best for another person, no matter how hard it is. You see, this kind of love helps us to have hard conversations with the people that we love. And it's this kind of love that makes God's people different from the world around us. But what happens when God's people stop loving God or stop loving one another? I mean, we saw it in our Bible reading. If you've got your Bibles there, open them up to Revelation chapter 2. Have a look at verse 4 with me. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus celebrates their passion for the truth in the Ephesian church and calls them to repent because of their lack of love so they may return to God and to continue to hold to the promises of God. And as the word examines our heart this morning, it's my hope that, the, that you would see the beauty of the love of God and our need to love one another. And so the big idea this morning is that perseverance requires truth and love without compromise. But let me pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, you who have caused your word to be written, give us your spirit so that we may read, mark and learn and inwardly digest these words. Help us to display your character to each other and to the world. Help us to embrace your eternal hope and to hold fast to your son, Jesus. Amen. Today, we start our new series in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven letters. So we've kind of dived bomb into chapter two. So let me give us a little bit of context to understand where we're up to. In chapter one, verse nine, John writes this, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Towards the end of his life, the Apostle John is exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. So God gives him a single apocalyptic vision 
in full technicolor. He sees the things that were, the things that are, and the things that are to come. And as we come to the book of Revelation, some of us might feel a little bit of trepidation because of what we've heard or read or, or, or seen about the book of Revelation. But chapter 1 starts as a beautiful reminder that the resurrected Jesus lives and reigns on his throne today. And so John's job is to write down everything he sees and send it to these seven letters in Asia Minor, or what we would call modern-day Turkey, so that they may continue to hold to the promises of God. A friend of mine, uh, we were chatting once about the book of Revelation, and he summed it up beautifully in two words. The book of Revelation, Jesus wins. That comfort shall help us to hold on the promises of God as we walk with Jesus in this life. And so the book of Revelation, these letters that we're studying over the next couple of weeks, they come to us as a letter from a brother who shares our sufferings and commands from our king who lives and reigns today. And these letters that we'll be looking at, they follow a similar pattern, but they have a particular focus. First, there's an announcement, a description of who Jesus is that picks up something from the first chapter. Then there's a celebration of something they're doing right. There's a challenge of something they're doing wrong. And finally, a word of comfort as Jesus reminds them of his promises and he pushes them forward, that the imagery in that promise pushes them forward to chapters 21 and 22 to give them comfort and hope of the new creation. But our job isn't to compare ourselves to these churches so that we can puff ourselves up with pride, you know, aren't we better than those people in Sardis or Laodicea? No, as the Word of God examines our hearts, we're not trying to figure out what church we're more like. We're looking at these churches and learning from them so that we may return to God and hold firm to his promises as we face suffering in this world. So today, by way of introduction, let's have a look at Ephesus. We're going to look at the celebration, the challenge, and the comfort. So let's celebrate. Have a look. At Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. Write to the angel of the church of Ephesus, thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The word angel here simply means messenger. So John isn't saying that every church has its own guardian angel that looks out over them, although that would be nice. Uh, but rather these are addressed to the letter or the, the leader or the elders of the church. And the seven golden lampstands we see in the last verse of chapter 1 represents the seven churches that, um, that John is writing to. But where is Jesus among these seven? Where, where is Jesus in this vision? Verse 1, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. You see, Jesus is present with his people by his word and through his spirit. He knows who we are. He knows what we're going through. He knows our struggles and he knows how to bring our comfort. He knows that we were celebrating new life this morning and he heard our prayers for the Hislop kids. What a great comfort that is. 
Have a look at verse 2. What else does he know? I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Jesus celebrates their work because of their toil. The word toil is what Genesis 3 uses to describe work after sin enters the world. And John uses here to describe, to describe the hardship of ministry and serving one another. They are toiling together as they labor and serve and patiently endure together. You see, Jesus doesn't recognize the value of their ministry because it's easy or it fulfills their own calling. Jesus esteems it in his church because they're a hard-working church with hard-working people. When persecution comes, they take a hit and they keep going. When hardship gets in their way, they don't slow down. When one of them is tired and sticks up their head above the trenches, they see an army of volunteers in their church who are also tired and they keep serving together. If Ephesus had a mascot, it would be the Energizer Bunny. Remember that? Because they, they keep going and going and going. They do hard work of serving, and Jesus says they do the hard work of standing firm on the truth. Verse 2, he says, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and found them to be liars. And verse 6, he says, Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The false apostles lie about their identity and their authority. The Nicolaitans try to relax the word of God, teaching in a very subtle way that God's people are free to worship other gods and to sin. Now, we're going to have a look at this more next week, so I'm going to leave a lot of this for Tim Goldsmith to explain the Nicolaitans. Um, that's me not passing the buck, just FYI. Uh, but the emphasis here for Ephesus is an encouragement for hating things that God hates. Friends, let's be honest, this is very strong language to speak about God, isn't it? It feels strong because we live in a world that is obsessed with tolerance. We assume that God should tolerate all things because our world tolerates all things. But here, Jesus says, that there are things that not even God himself tolerates. And if God's church reflects the character of God, then there are things that the church and his people shouldn't tolerate either. That is, leading people away from the truth of the word and the life-giving message of Jesus. God has given his people the responsibility to guard the truth of the gospel. And tolerating falsehoods will not lead the church into the truth or persevere the church with the truth. So Jesus celebrates their commitment to the truth, hating what God hates and loving what God loves. And so here is an early church contending for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all standing firm on the truth of God's word and finding life in the name of Jesus. Our individualistic society teaches us that things have value and meaning and worth when they meet my needs. 
And if we bring that thinking into church, we can fall into the trap of thinking that church is just a cruise ship full of deck chairs. And church is about my needs and my growth and what can this church really offer me? But Revelation 2 gives us a bigger and better picture of church. That church is not a lifeboat, but a life raft. Church is not a cruise ship, but a life raft. One where everyone gets an oar and everyone gets to serve together to save those who are drowning at sea. See, this side of heaven, ministry will be toil. We will need to endure and reject false teachings. And Jesus says when God's people do this together, it is beautiful and it should be celebrated. Friends, this is the kind of church that he wants, God wants his people to be. This is who he wants us to be here at OEC, serving together one another and striving for the gospel, working hard and defending the truth so others may be saved. Um, Whenever my family goes on holidays outside of Orange, we always visit friends who work at other churches. Um, And the funny thing happens when you go to another church The grass always looks greener. Have you noticed this? I mean, churches on holidays, uh, everyone smiles at you. You're the new person, so everyone wants to talk to you, yeah? I mean, the heating is the right temperature, the morning tea roster is always full, the projector doesn't even flicker, uh, and from the outside, Ephesus looks the same. But looks can be deceiving. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Jesus walks among them, he sees their heart, and he knows that they lack the right attitude because they have abandoned their first love. But what is this first love? It could be a lack of outward emotion during church, or it could be the way that people make you feel when you come in the door. But the emotion in church and the vibe of the room are both external expressions And Jesus is talking about the attitude of the heart. John Stott, in his commentary on Revelation, helpfully explains that in these letters, when Jesus rebukes a church, it begins with a wrong attitude towards Jesus Christ. And so he says that the first love they have abandoned is the love that they have for Jesus that overflows for a love for other people. You see, they had worked hard at rejecting false teaching, but their glow of love for Jesus had slowly died and they had become rigid. Instead of devotion, they had theological precision. Instead of affection, they only had accuracy. Now, make no mistake, Jesus has warmly praised them for rejecting what is false but he is deeply saddened when his love for them is not returned. Jesus is not saying there are two types of churches, one who love the knowledge of head knowledge and one who love heart knowledge. Jesus is saying that together we are to love his word and to love him deeply. But notice in verse 4, Jesus has not abandoned them. Jesus' love has not abandoned them. Their love, they have abandoned their love of him. It's not a passive thing, it's an active thing. They have turned away from Jesus and left their devotion for him. But the lovely thing about this letter 
is that Jesus invites his people back with a command. Have a look at verse 5. Remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repentance means to simply do a 180, to turn around, to head the other way. In other words, the first step away from lovelessness is to turn around and step towards Jesus Christ. And there is a simple beauty in this. You see, Jesus is not like your teenager sitting on the end of his bed wishing that people would love him. He doesn't give us a list of things to do. He doesn't say we need to conjure up feelings in our hearts. He simply says, come back to me through faith. There'll be no shame. There'll be no guilt at the foot of the cross. Free forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. And so as we return to God through repentance and faith, God grows our love for him, our love for Jesus, and then that is reflected in our love for others. How does God grow our love for others? By leaving us in the church with all of our bristles. For it's through God's people that we learn to love others. I mean, think about OEC. We've been drawn together from all parts of Australia, all parts of the world. And in this way, we're unlike any other club or association. I mean, if you have an interesting reading, you join a book club. If you have an interest in craft or knitting like my wife, you join a craft club. If you like to ride bikes and drink coffee, you wear Lycra. I mean, you join a bike club. You get my point. The beauty of God's church is that he unites us in Christ. People who would have no other reason to gather together. And God uses the church as a classroom to teach us that as we love him and his son Jesus, he grows us to love one another. It's the great chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul gives, his, gives us his excursus on love and what it is. He says, love is patient. And so God will grow you in patience by giving it you brothers and sisters in Christ that will make life difficult for you. They are a gift. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, love is not envious. So God will grow your modesty by giving you brothers and sisters in Christ that are more accomplished, better gifted, and more impressive than you. 1 Corinthians says that love is not proud or rude. And God grows us in humility by having us serve other people and leading on teams where other people are the leader. You see, Christian growth in love for others is not done by leaving a church. It's, being, it's by being part of the church, part of God's people. He uses all of our rough edges to grow us to be more and more like Jesus so that our love for God may overflow and our love for others as well. So can I ask, where do you need to grow in patience with other people? Where do you need to grow in modesty in your service? Friends, where do you need to grow in humility as you serve alongside others. Jesus celebrates their passion for truth and calls them to repent of their lack of love so they may continue to display the character of God and receive a future reward of eternal life. 
And so Jesus leaves them with a comfort. Uh, one of the things I love about the, the letters in Revelation is they teach us not to idolise the early church. I mean, sometimes I hear people say, you know, they read Acts chapter 2 and they say, oh, if we could only return to the early church, then things would be so much better. All of our problems would be solved. But today we see that the early church has problems, just like the modern church. We all have challenges as we live this side of heaven. So Jesus doesn't leave the Ephesians with this idealistic mountaintop view of what church is. No, he leaves them the only thing that can bring them true and lasting hope. That is, the promises of God. Have a look at verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Bible opens and closes with the tree of life. In Genesis 2, it's in a garden where Adam and Eve stand face to face with God. But when sin enters the world, that relationship is lost. But through trusting in Jesus' death and repenting of our sin, that relationship is restored. So Revelation 22, the new creation is not a garden, but a city filled with God's people and where God dwells with his people. And right there in the center of the city is the tree of life. A promise that for those of us who trust in Jesus, that we too will once again eat from the tree of life. And it's this promise is given to the one who conquers. Who is the one who conquers? Well, I think we like to read this as a bit of an aspirational statement. Yes, I've got things to do and things to conquer and let's go. But chapter 1 tells us that Jesus has conquered sin and death. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the, big, the first and the last. He reigns in glory today. It is Jesus who has conquered all. And so we come, become conquerors, not by trusting in our own efforts, but by trusting in Jesus and what he has done on the cross for us. Remember 1 John 4.10? Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The promise is for those who put their trust in Jesus. Because in God's great love, he has reconciled us to himself. And so we trust in Jesus amidst the sufferings and pains of this world as we continue to seek to love God and other people so that we may be welcomed into his kingdom at the end of days. To conclude, friends, today we have celebrated when churches defend the truth of the gospel. And we've been challenged. We've been challenged in our love for Jesus and our love for other people. So can I ask you two questions to reflect on as you go into your week? Firstly, do you need to return to God so that you, through faith and repentance, may grow in your love for God, so that you may have a right attitude in your heart and be motivated by the grace of God in good works. Second question, do you need to grow in your love for others? As, you, as the love of God overflows in your heart, 
where does God need to grow you so you may continue to serve him and other people? And we pray that God would do that in our hearts and our church. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we uh, thank you and praise you for the opportunity to read this letter, to read someone else's emails, Lord, to learn from our brother in affliction and our king who reigns forever. And so, Heavenly Father, help us to be a people who time and time again return to you through repentance and faith. Grow in us our love for you and may it overflow for a love for one another so that we may continue to reflect your character and people in our midst may experience the love of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.